if you don't take away commissions, you cannot restructure your organization so that salespeople spend 100% of their time selling. And you cannot move 90% of activities that are currently performed face-to-face -face with customers inside. And the reason that's important is, if I'm to speak frankly with you, it's those first two steps that are what's going to really move the needle. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesise what I've learnt along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today's summit special is Justin Rothmarsh on a wet and windy day in Wiltshire. It's great to look at the video of Justin speaking at the Monkhouse and Company Summit, September 2020. Justin helps people revolutionize their sales function. If the question you ask yourself is, if I double the number of sellers, would I double my revenue? And if you pause or hesitate or say no, then implementing Justin's The Machine would give you some clarity. It fixes not just sales. It might even fix many bits of your organization, but it certainly impacts sales, marketing, customer service, pre-sales, the whole customer journey. Justin looks at it from the perspective of lean manufacturing. There's a couple of things that are controversial. No commission, no individual targets. They're quite difficult for people to maybe accept in the first instance that they feel that salespeople are coin-operated. So challenge your bias, challenge your belief in how sales could work or should work or seek a solution to the problem in your business and watch this 20 minutes of Justin Rothmarsh magic from the stage at the Monkhouse and Company Summit. And if at the end of it you think, that was amazing, how do I find out more? Well, in fact, Justin is running one of his workshops in the UK on the 26th of May at the Management Lab on the farm in Wiltshire. So if you like this 20 minutes, then hit head over to Monkhouse and Company, click on the workshop tab and buy a ticket. But be quick because we've only got a few left. Enjoy. What a great place to socially distance. <laughs> um, but I don't want to talk about Ebola. I want to talk about growing your businesses, which is my specialty. And what I want to do this morning is to drop three ideas on you, explain those ideas, and then, and then have kind of an open discussion with you all about those ideas. In case you're wondering about my accent, I know it's a hybrid. I was actually born not too far from here in Cambridge, so that's the accent. <laughs> I grew up in Australia, live in Los Angeles. So if we get introduced to an organization, it's either by the CEO or by private equity, 
And our mandate is always the same, figure out how to grow this organization. And there are three ideas that we bring to the table, and those are the ideas that I want to share with you this morning. And you could think of these ideas as a, as a three-step program. Um, um, so I'll start just by dropping these on you. So the first thing that we do if we go into an organization with a mandate to grow the organization rapidly is we work to restructure the organization so that salespeople perform only one activity, and that's what we call selling conversations. And by only, I mean they do absolutely nothing else. So what that means is if you work for this organization and your business card has the word sales in it, when you come to work of a morning, you only have one decision to make, and that decision is, will I work in this particular instance or not work? And if you want to go to the restroom or play foosball or whatever, that's okay. But if you choose to work, there's no further thinking required because there's one, only one activity that you're responsible for, and that is selling conversations. And you have selling conversation after selling conversation after selling conversation until the end of the day, at which point you go home, and that repeats ad infinitum. And Achieving that requires a restructure of the organization, which I'll talk about in a second. So that's the first idea. If you want to grow your organizations aggressively, not incrementally. There's lots of ways to grow your organizations incrementally. But if you want to grow your organizations aggressively, my first piece of advice is restructure those organizations so that salespeople do nothing other than selling conversations. And I'll talk about definitions in a minute. The second idea that I want to drop on you is that after you've restructured your organization so that salespeople spend 100% of their time selling, the next thing that you want to do is examine very carefully the activities that are performed in the field. And you want to look at each activity and ask yourself one question. And the question is, does this activity absolutely have to be performed in the field, face-to-face -face with customers? And what you will end up concluding if you, ask, if you answer the question honestly, and some of you have figured this out already on account of Ebola, is that, um, is that not every activity that is currently being performed face-to-face -face with, or every activity that salespeople claim needs to be performed face-to-face -face with customers actually needs to be performed face-to-face -face with customers. In fact, you'll discover that most don't. And if you're really honest, you'll end up discovering that virtually none do. To the extent that there are activities that genuinely need to be performed face-to-face -face with customers, my advice is throw more resources at them than you currently do. Significantly more resources. But what you'll end up realizing if you're methodical and honest in your evaluation of those activities is that very few do. And of course, when you identify those activities that don't need to be performed face-to-face -face with customers, the obvious thing that you can do is take those activities out of the field and move them inside to a central location. And by a central location, I mean an office in the UK if your market is Europe, not 27 offices spread across Europe. So that's the second piece of advice if you want to grow your business aggressively. The third piece of advice is very simple. Remove your salespeople's autonomy and remove their commissions. I didn't say salespeople are going to like it, I said it was simple. Take away their autonomy and take away commissions. Now, I'm not suggesting that you take away salespeople's autonomies and their variable pay because salespeople are going to like it. And I'm not suggesting it because you're likely to see an increase in performance on account of taking away their autonomy and performance pay, even though you will. The reason why I'm suggesting it is that, in reality, 
taking away salespeople's autonomy and their piece rate pay is a prerequisite for the first two steps. In other words, if you don't take away commissions, you cannot restructure your organization so that salespeople spend 100% of their time selling, and you cannot move 90% of activities that are currently performed face-to-face -face with customers inside. And the reason that's important is, if I'm to speak frankly with you, it's those first two steps that are what's going to really move the needle. So if you really want to give your organization a kick in the pants and grow it aggressively, those first two steps, assuming that your business has good fundamentals, those first, first two steps are all you need to do. So the reason why we're eliminating commissions is so that you have a mandate that allows you to implement those first two steps consistently, unflinchingly, and exhaustively in your organization. Will that make sense? Good. So before I open it up to questions, let me just loop back over those and expand on them a little bit. So the first thing that we need to be clear of is the definition of selling conversation. You all know what conversation means. You've been practicing this morning. Um, but what about this word selling? If you ask your director of sales to def or a salesperson to define the word selling, they will have you believe that the word selling refers to all the activities that a salesperson typically performs, which has a degree of circularity to it that should disqualify it from any intelligent exploration into the subject. So a better way to approach this would be to ask, well, what's the one activity that a salesperson performs that genuinely and, and inarguably generates value? What's the one activity? If you had to pick just one activity that salespeople perform that adds value, perhaps value that, or perhaps an activity that couldn't be performed as well by other folks in the organization, what would that activity be? And what do we mean by closing? Do we mean actually signing the paperwork? No. What does closing actually mean? Because it's a myth that salespeople sit with a customer and wrestle, you know. We used to, when I was in sales, we used to say, you hold the pen, I'll move the paper. But that doesn't actually happen. In most of the cases, contracts come in by email or via DocuSign, right? So when we talk about closing, what are we actually, what specific activity are we referring to? Convincing, persuasion, right? Isn't that a salesperson's special, their superpower, persuasion? Okay. So I would define a selling conversation as a conversation where a salesperson is persuading. Now, if, you have a, if you've had a customer who's transacted with you five or six times, and they've come back to you to talk about the seventh transaction, how much persuasion is required? Well, it depends on your operational performance, doesn't it? If you screwed up the last six transactions, a whole bunch of persuasion. But if you've done a good job of the last six transactions, how much persuasion? None. None. Probably a negative amount of persuasion because of this magical thing called inertia. It's costly for organizations to move their business around all over the place. You've got all sorts of switching costs, as including, of course, the risk. And if you sell things that are expensive or complex, the risk can be probably the most major switching cost. So if you transacted with an organization more than zero times, and you sell a product or a service of some substance, and you've done a good job of 
honoring your promises and delivered what you promised on time to the customer's expectations and so on, then there is no persuasion required. And to the extent there is persuasion required, you as the business owner should be interpreting that as a sign of serious operational problems. And you sh shouldn't be listening to me up here today. You should be in the loo or something because you don't need help with sales. You need help with operations. So there's only one type of interaction where persuasion is required. What's that? The first, yeah. The, go the role of your salespeople should be to convince folks to transact with you for the first time. Because once they transact with you for the first time, they get to experience your operational efficiencies. And on account of switching cost, after they've experienced those operational efficiencies for the first time, they're hooked and no further persuasion is required. Now, them getting hooked results in what we should be calling a relationship. But we don't call it a relationship. We degraded that word. And we use it to refer to the personal relationship that the salesperson supposedly has with the prospect. Which, assuming transactions of reasonable significance, is of commercially no value whatsoever once you've started transacting with an organization because the personal relationship should be overpowered entirely by the commercial relationship. And if it isn't, like I said a moment ago, you're in the wrong presentation. You should be listening to someone talk about operations. So when I talk about selling conversations, my assumption is, or my recommendation is, that salespeople should be using their special power, their superpower, exclusively to convince those people who've never transacted with you before to transact with you for the first time. That's what they should be doing, and they should be doing precisely nothing else. Is that clear? Activities performed outside. Now, if you look at the activities that salespeople claim need to be performed face-to-face, -face, these are activities that are traditionally performed by salespeople, but that probably should not be. The two common activities that require a salesperson to be on a customer's premise are detailed requirement discovery and demonstrations, user training, stuff like that. Tell me, if you were to survey both your engineering department and your customers, and ask both of those parties, what type of individual would you most like to do detailed requirement discovery? What would they tell you? A geezer? <laughs> no, they'd say we'd actually like an engineer to go on site and do detailed requirement discovery. Because we have this garbage in, garbage out problem. If we have a salesperson who, whose superpower, remember, is persuasion. And, and what that means is that um, salespeople's special ability is the ability to distort the appearance of reality. <laughs> That's why we pay them so much. It's, a, it's, a, it's an important, it's a valuable skill, but why the hell would we want someone with that special gift applying that gift to the collection of detailed requirements to feed into our engineering team for solution design? Demonstrations. Who do we want doing demonstrations? Salespeople or engineers? Yeah, your customers want product people doing. So it's not that face-to-face -face activities aren't required as part of the opportunity management process. It's that there isn't a requirement for salespeople to perform those specific activities. So my advice is salespeople should own opportunities from start to finish. 
But to the extent that there's a requirement for field-based activities, you should send the individuals to perform those activities that are best qualified for said activities, and it transpires that those people are not called salespeople, they're called engineers, or if you don't have an engineering department, they're called designers, or whatever the analog is for engineering or design in your particular organization. So that's the second idea. The end result of moving sales activities inside is we get to build what's called an inside sales team. How am I going for time? How many more minutes? Ten more minutes. Okay. We get to, so I'll stop in a minute. We'll have time to chat about this. We get to build what's called an inside sales team. And an inside sales team consists of folks with headsets on. Now, it's tempting to think telemarketers, but we never build teams of telemarketers because most of our clients are industrial or technical. So they're selling complex things, high-value transactions, sometimes hundreds, sometimes millions of dollars worth of transaction. So we don't want telemarketers, but we, we do want a telesales type environment. So we want to take professional salespeople, folks who your customers would like to transact with, and we want to put them inside with headsets on in an environment where they can comfortably have 15 selling conversations a day. Now that number is very important. It's important because 15 selling conversations a day is significantly more than the number of conversa selling conversations that your salespeople are currently having. Does anyone want to dispute that? <laughs> I suspect if you count up the number of conversations your salespeople are having and then disqualify all of the ones that, according to our definition here today, don't count as selling conversations, the number of selling conversations your salespeople are currently having is definitely in the single digits, right? At the high end of the... S or the low end of... That's the, the low end of the number line, right? Two or three a week. So we're talking about a change from a couple a week to 15 a day. That's what's called significant, even in the UK. <laughs> now, if you interview salespeople and say to salespeople, are you more effective face-to-face? -face? They'll say yes, and they probably are, but who cares? If you ask the same salespeople, are you 5, 10, 15 times more effective face-to-face? -face? All of them will say no. The delta is not that significant. Sales is a numbers game. You need to remind your salespeople of that because they forget from time to time. Even your director of sales, they forget from time to time. They'll come to you and they'll say, I lost this deal. What should I have done? Nothing. You should have pursued it and you did. Excellent. Go chase the next 50. The reason why salespeople obsess over individual deals is because they don't have pipeline. The reason they don't have pipeline is because they're not salespeople. They're highly paid mobile customer service reps. If you build a sales team, what I'm talking about is a team of people who wear headsets who have 15 selling conversations a day, pursuing prospective customers, folks who are currently transacting with your competitors and presenting compelling and intriguing propositions to them in the interest of starting a conversation, knowing that a small percentage of those conversations will resolve to one, and a small percentage at those kind of volumes is more than enough if you want to grow your business aggressively, which I'm sure you all do. So I have seven and a half minutes left to t talk about this. So there may be a controversial idea or two in amongst those three ideas that I've dropped on you. So let's talk about it. Who has an objection? I'll take some. Why, Why not? not? You look like Michael Hutchins. Can you sing? <laughs> <laughs> give it a try. I'll give you the... <laughs> <laughs> 
really interesting. It's something I've wrestled with a lot because I, I'm familiar with the Carly work on purpose and mastery and autonomy is what creates motivation in the workplace, right? Sometimes people think it's damn things work, but it's not. You just give the talk, everyone knows. But sure. um, I've always been kind of stuck in that between those two concepts because on the one hand, it's, it teaches that if, if, um, if somebody is performing uh, a cognitive role, so something that isn't manual labor, then performance-related pay makes no difference to their output. Well, it has a negative impact on their output. Oh, no, exactly. Mm. But then on the other side of that, it teaches that autonomy is one of the key, key three things to enable motivation. Okay, so there's two arguments against piece rate pay or commissions. Remember, we used to have piece rate pay all through the organization. It used to be that if you worked in manufacturing, you got paid on a piece rate. And in fact, you'll probably find textile workers even today who in some environments get paid on a piece rate. They get sent a package of stuff and they you know, sew seams at so many cents per seam and they send it back when they're done. But piece rate has disappeared. Piece rate pay has disappeared from the whole organization except for sales where it still exists. So there's two arguments. Th there's the academic argument that Dan Pink echoed, and that is that piece rate pay increases performance when we're talking about manual labor, but it decreases performance when we're talking about knowledge-based work, and it's a really good argument. An interesting little postscript where that argument's concerned is that if you look at a typical sales environment, you will often discover that the person with the best communication skills is not the best salesperson. And on the occasions when you discover that, if you look at the best salesperson, you'll discover they're not succeeding because they're a great communicator, they're succeeding because they simply hustle harder. They perform more activities. Sometimes these people are psychopaths, they don't mind rejection, they just, it's not good for the organization, but it's good for their sales numbers. And you could argue that if you reduce sales to just that, then commissions have a positive impact on that kind of work effort. But that kind of prompts the question, why would you want that kind of work effort? in a modern day organization. But the other argument against piece rate pay is if we think about why piece rate pay was eliminated in manufacturing environments, it's because piece rate, piece rate pay is the antithesis of division of labor. And the work we do at Ballistics is all about division of labor. We take the work packet that salespeople are responsible for traditionally and we break it into a whole bunch of little discrete tasks and we have individuals perform those tasks. And as a consequence of the complexity of pursuing deals, there are dependencies between. So we end up with an environment that looks a bit, little bit like a manufacturing environment with dependencies. And in such an environment, we don't want everyone to work as quickly as possible. So the reason piece rate pay was eliminated in manufacturing is in order to maximize the rate of output from the plant in a manufacturing environment, what we need to do is maximize the rate at which the slowest resource operates, right? The chain is as strong as its weakest link. So whenever you have dependencies, you have a system that doesn't have infinite degrees of freedom and has very limited degrees of freedom. And that, of course, is part of the power of the assembly line. It's not just that it takes the work to the worker, it's that it forces everyone to work at the same rate as the slowest operator in the line. So the reason we got rid of piece rate pay in manufacturing is because piece rate pay is explicitly designed to be an incentive for every worker to work as fast as possible, which is catastrophic in an environment where we have a complex system with dependencies. What we're talking to sales, what we're talking about doing to sales is exactly what was done to manufacturing at the turn of the century. We're talking about deconstructing it into a set of specific tasks 
and building a more complex system with dependencies between operators. We don't want everyone to work as fast as possible. So that's why we get rid of piece rate pay. We don't care about the other half. No, no. It's 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 a it's a cherry on the top. If we're not interested in the personal psychology thing, because the 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 negative consequences of having a whole bunch of people in a complex work environment all trying to maximize their individual rates of work, the negative consequence of that is so much greater than any potential behavioral consequences. So yeah, my view is that's why we eliminate piece rate pay and the, the fact that knowledge workers perform better in an environment where they paid their market value is just a cherry on the top. It's a long answer to a short question. Can you just give an example of what you mean of just bring that to life a bit, as in what you mean by how they would behave based on the picture they have or how their behavior would change on salary results? So if you, if you uh, lo look at the type, in, uh, type of environment that I'm describing where salespeople are only responsible for selling conversations, and application engineers are responsible for detailed requirement discovery, and the marketing team is responsible for originating opportunities at the rate necessary to keep salespeople fully activated, and so on and so on. We're talking about a fairly complex environment. If you had one person being compensated on a piece rate basis, you're, you, you're creating the impression that that person is responsible for winning the deal. Are they? It's a shared responsibility, right? So do you think that it might do harm to the team environment if we had one geezer driving around in a Porsche, eating caviar, drinking champagne, and the rest of the folks who arguably made an equal, if not greater, contribution to the deal are not driving around in a Porsche, eating caviar? So the consequences are destructive. And what I say to, to, to CEOs who I talk to is, if that is not self-evident, do not go down this path. You're not ready. Go back and read the book again. If you genuinely think you can apply division of labor in a principled way to your sales function and retain commissions, then you definitely don't understand what you're doing. It's questionable whether you should even be a CEO, to be frank. <laughs> because you don't have enough experience with an organization to be trusted with one. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Presumably, you, you uh, swap other KPIs into the performance evaluation of that person, do you? So, yes, but th this, it's, it's funny how much focus there is on commissions and, and KPIs. And, and sometimes I get the feeling when I talk to groups of senior managers that, that we're trying to orchestrate the level of performance that we're looking for by fiddling with comp and KPIs. And my experience with organizations is that's not how to make them perform well. The way to make them perform well is to engineer them to perform the way you want them to perform. As opposed to engineer them to form, perform in some way other than the way that you would like them to perform and then attempt to use performance indicators and comp as some sort of artificial stimulant. So if we build a sales environment with five or six salespeople who are each having 15 selling conversations a day, 
and the marketing department comes up with interesting propositions that the salespeople can use to start conversations with customers, then environments like that have a habit of making money, even if they're trying not to. So focus less on the performance engagers and more on the design of your organization. Now, most of you are in a situation where you can't focus on the design of your sales organization because you've got your salespeople on a piece rate, which means with every pay packet, you're signaling to them that they're in charge. So you have to decide, do you want to be the boss or do you want some geezer to be the boss? That's what it boils down to. And if you're the boss, then you have a mandate to design that environment to, be cons to perform consistently, day after day, even on rainy days, to perform exactly the way that you want it to perform. Are KPIs important? Sure, they're important. But, you know, in the environment I'm describing, what should we measure? It's pretty, pretty bloody obvious. We should measure daily sales, daily numbers. And if you're talking about big deals, you need to find some way to, you need to find some proxy. But that's not a difficult problem to solve if you turn your attention to it. I've got time for just one more question? Oh, or I don't? Okay, just one. <laughs> Unless Dominic tells me I can have two. The types of people who you would like to buy from. So in an interview, you get them to persuade you. How would you do it? Yeah, talk to them and say, would I like to buy something from this person? So if you describe this environment to your existing, your legacy sales team, and, and you say, would you like to work in such an environment? They'll say, oh, God, no. What would motivate me in the morning? I'm motivated by commissions. That's the type of person that I am. But the funny thing is, if you run an ad in, what's the paper that the street reads? The Fin? The Financial Review? What's it called here? Financial Times, in the FT, if you run an ad in the FT for a salesperson and you describe the role and you say, you know, salesperson required, no travel, salary 150K, whatever a reasonable salary is for a salesperson, um, all sales opportunities required, um, you'll have a line of salespeople, your competitive salespeople down the street. Turns out your salespeople wouldn't want to work in such an environment, but all your competitor salespeople would. So we don't have problems hiring salespeople. You, you know, if you take someone who's earning 150K today, variable plus fixed, and offer them 150K fixed, they just got a pay rise. They know they got a pay rise. Their husband or their significant other knows that they just got a pay rise. Um, um, and your own salespeople, after the insult of the proposition wears off, will end up realizing that they're actually on a better wicket. And they end up with a job that's more enjoyable. If they actually enjoy selling, they get to spend all day, every day selling. If they like doing paperwork, then they can join the customer service team and get a slight reduction, well, significant reduction in pay. Or they can go and join someone else's sales team. Waste their money. Okay, this has been fun. I think I'm on again after lunch. So I hope to see some of you, whoops. Hope to see some of you then. Good luck with the Ebola thing. Thank <laughs> you.